Wendell Berry is about my age, um, a year or two older. Unlike me, he was wise. So he got tenure, I think at Stanford, but it doesn't matter where, in the English department many years ago. And he realized that the university was not doing a good job. Now, some of you here are young enough to realize that that continues to be true, right? Um, I often say to students, are you enjoying school? And they sort of shrink a little bit. And then slowly I extract out of them that their learning style is basically memorizing and dumping, uh, which is a total failure to adapt to the invention of the printing press, let alone the microcomputer. Uh, we shouldn't be doing information recall. We're past that. But it's much harder to teach students to read and to think than it is to teach them to memorize or force them to. We do it in medical school. I go into lecture rooms around this country and see idiots writing strips of DNA sequences on the board for the medical students to learn because they happen to have got that sequence sorted out themselves. That is utterly stupid. But that's what's happening. Wendell Berry realized that the university was on its way to this uh, a long while ago, 40 years ago. And so he threw away a tenured position in a major university, walked away from it. And he went back to his roots in Kentucky. His grandfather and his father had grown tobacco, so he did. He also wrote beautiful novels and essays. Um, at least one person here has read a Wendell Berry novel as a result of meeting me, so others of you may do so. Uh, in the shops at the moment is both uh, Hannah Coulter and... Uh, uh, Jay Crow, I think they're both on the shelves in any decent bookshop. Uh, if you want a good novel, which is implicitly Christian as opposed to explicitly Christian, I don't know a better living writer for that purpose. He's written the imagined social history of an imagined community in Kentucky over the whole of the last century. They're beautifully written stories. And like all great novelists, he changes you without you knowing how he's done it. Uh, in Walker Percy's lovely phrase... A novelist is someone who, in various ways, says to you, I don't feel so good. What about you? Um, that's the human condition, isn't it? Such is Wendell Berry. He's also pro-life. And I don't know anybody else who could begin a, uh, uh, an essay of 100 or so pages, perhaps a bit more, on life with a commentary on King Lear. But that's what he does. Uh, just the, the little episode with... Uh, Gloucester and his son, but it, it's beautifully done. But from that first chapter, I want to read you his uh, assessment of where we are at the moment. He says the problem, and the problem he's talking about is our mindset, which is a reductionistic one, and you will by the end of today understand that a little better, I hope. The problem, as it appears to me, is that we are using the wrong language. The language we use to speak of the world and its creatures, including ourselves, has gained a certain analytical power, along with a lot of expertish pomp, that's called science, but has lost much of its power to designate what is being designated, analyzed, or to convey any respect or care or affection or devotion towards it. As a result, we have a lot of genuinely concerned people are call it, calling upon us to save the world, which their language simultaneously reduces to an assemblage of perfectly featureless or dispirited ecosystems, organisms, environments, or mechanisms, and the like. It is impossible to prefigure the salvation of the world in the same language by which the world has been dismembered and defaced. By almost any standard, it seems to me the reclassification of the world from creature to machine must involve at least a perilous reduction of moral complexity. So must the shift in our attitude towards the creation from reverence to understanding. So must the shift in our perceived relationship to nature from that of steward to that of absolute owner, manager, and engineer. So must the permutation of holy to holistic. At this point, I can only declare myself. I think with the poet and scholar Kathleen Raine that she was correct in reminding us that life, like holiness, can only be known by being experienced. To experience it is not to figure it out or even to understand it, but to suffer it and rejoice in it as it is. In suffering it and rejoicing in it as it is, we know that we cannot understand it completely. We know, moreover, 
that we do not wish to have it appropriated by somebody's claim to have understood it. Though we have life, it is beyond us. We do not know how we have it or why. We do not know what is going to happen to it or to us. It is not predictable. Though we can destroy it, we cannot make it. It cannot, except by reduction and grave risk of damage, be controlled. It is, as Blake said, holy. To think otherwise is to enslave life. And to make not humanity, but a few humans, its predictably inept masters. How many of you have not had the sense that a few members of society are currently the inept masters of too much of your life? That's all of us, isn't it? That is our problem in the Western world. From doctors to students, you name it. The nanny state continues to invade our lives and reduce our freedoms. But more of that a little later. What has this got to do with abortion? I hope you can see immediately that it's got a great deal to do with it. Last year when I was here, I talked about how you talk about abortion in a secular university without getting slaughtered. Um, I gather that is still online if you want to watch it, and uh, I have a CD of that and some other things with me if you're interested in the things I talk about by the end of this morning or today. But today I want to do something which I don't often have the privilege to do, and that's to talk about what ideas it were, which, which were the ideas that got me into trouble with abortion, because I was in fact pro-choice for about 20 years because I had adopted the reductionistic view of the world that Wendell Berry recognized way back when I was doing it was a very bad move for humanity. Now, in order to deal with this story, we have to go back a very long way. I'm not going to go all the way back. The creation story is very important in this process. Uh, the, the dominion that we have is the dominion of a steward, not the dominion of a tyrant. Uh, but uh, there isn't time to start that far back today. Uh, you can do that. I'll start a little later with the giving of the law and its purpose. Because we, have clearly, we have clearly have a rapidly eroding vision of what the law is about. In fact, since abortion became legal, the law has changed from the pursuit of justice to the pursuit of power. That's what that move did to us. Uh, it is no longer what it used to be. Now, I can unpack that for you, and you can note that down now if you want me to do that as a question. Um, that's not the major point of today's talk, but that has certainly happened. But what was the law given for? Now, here you are at a Lutheran college. Can any of you tell me what verse precedes the Ten Commandments in both uh, Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. What's the statement that precedes the first commandment? Thank you. And there weren't many who were getting agitated by you that nobody was answering because many of them couldn't think what it was. Uh, a little patience with questions and it, you discover that our modern world is biblically illiterate. Uh, that is a very, very dangerous thing and has a lot to do with the development of the problems that we are dealing with today. In both Deuteronomy and Exodus, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, could the children of Israel get out of Egypt on their own? Was it something they could do? Of course, the answer is no. So isn't it amazing that way back then, God introduces the law with an act of grace? It was grace that brought them out of Egypt. Now, did God change his character between that act of grace and that list of thou shalt nots? Of course he didn't. He tells us, I never change. I am utterly reliable, the same every day in your life. I bring to you the same love, the same justice, the same truth. The change has to occur in you. So the Jews misunderstood the law, but it nevertheless had a function. Moses taught them right at the beginning, and it, it's very sad that we, so, we read so little of the Old Testament now. Uh, it is a huge defect, and it's in, it must be remedied. The Bible is a book as a whole. 
I've spent a lot of time in Central Africa, for instance, with, because of my interest in severely malnourished children. And although we had sorted out the science in the 1970s, we've made absolutely no impact in the prevalence of malnutrition in Africa in the next 30 years. The work that we've done, we did in the 70s could save all those children. And it saved none, to, statistically, that is. And when I first went to Africa, bullied by various people, I had no desire to go. Uh, but if I'd known what I learned in the next few weeks at the beginning, I would have not bothered fighting. But like many of you students, you face currently about an 80% probability that during the next four years, your faith will slide away from you. It won't be so much that you don't believe, but you cease to practice, and when you cease to practice, the faith ceases to flourish, and shortly you become an invisible Christian, which is what happened to me. Uh, and then it takes you 20 years to recover, which is why I run Augustine College now, in order to short-circuit that process, and it works. But I went through that process, and whilst I was in Jamaica with my family studying malnourished children, I went to church because I wanted my children in church, and I was not in a good space, but things began to happen. Uh, but then we came to Canada, uh, and we went to church again, uh, and like many of you, I was bored stiff in church on Sunday morning, so for 17 years I sat in the back row and read a book during the service. I also listened to the sermon. It was quite possible to do both because the sermon was not demanding. Uh, but then my wife is very hospitable and we had some missionaries come to the church and she invited them back for lunch they were both from Central Africa they discovered very quickly that I knew as much about severely malnourished children as anyone in the world at that point and they said well you have to come and help us we have a huge problem and I said out loud in principle yes and under my breath in practice no uh, but my wife and kids said, that's a great idea, you're due a sabbatical, we're all coming. And I had a family war on my hands. And I put about half a dozen barriers in the way, and I thought I was perfectly safe, and then God dismantled them one by one. Uh, my last ridiculous attempt to avoid going was, uh, the, the cheapest route in was through Nairobi, and we had to overnight in Nairobi, and uh, I said the bill would be too great with a party of a dozen, which it was up to by this stage. Um, I did have to sell my car before we went, not to go into the red uh, while I was away. But um, just before I announced that we weren't going, so to speak, uh, I was in Toronto to give a lecture on severe malnutrition in the University of Toronto, sick kids. And after the lecture, a very black man comes to me and says, do you ever go to Nairobi? And I said, I'm trying not to. Why? Uh, and he said, well, I'm the professor of pediatrics there. We have never been taught how to teach malnutrition like that. I would love our students to hear that lecture. I said, I have to get through Nairobi as quickly as possible to keep the hotel bills down. He said, if you'll give some lectures, I can give you a house for free for as long as you wish. At which point, of course, I finally gave in and recognized that we were going to Africa. Battery that dropped out from somewhere. I hope it's of no significance. Uh, as far as I know, there's nothing on me that is electrically powered currently, other than by God's electrical system, that is. But uh, I then called my father in England. My mother was dead and said, Dad, you'd be interested to know that Sally and I and the children are going to Zaire, what was the Belgian Congo, where our friends, uh, the Englishes, were missionaries for many years. We'll be there for a year. And my father said, John, I have waited 45 years to hear you say that. My father is a very patient man. Those two missionaries had been God's proximate cause of my mother's conversion. They were faith missionaries. They lived in Central Africa for about 50 years with no salary. They prayed for everything, which did mean they spent three hours a day in prayer. And my mother wrote to them regularly once she got saved as a result of them. And they... What I learned that day was that they had put me on their daily prayer list from the day they heard I was conceived. They had prayed that I would become a Christian, a doctor, and I would go to the Belgian Congo. Um, the first prayer is reasonable. I was in a Christian family. Eighty percent of us are loved into the church. We're not preached into it. The second was ridiculous. I grew up in a, a Coronation Street type environment where... In 30 years, three boys went to university, and only one of them was a doctor. That was me, of course. 
Um, that was what scholarships do. Uh, the fourth, of course, didn't look like happening at all because it turned out the only thing I was fit to be was a professor. Uh, if the job didn't exist, I suspect I'd be unemployable. But uh, So I never left an academic environment until that summer when I went to Central Africa. Now, I'd been following the literature since I'd left Jamaica. Every year I made my graduate students look for data to show that education in nutrition was effective in Africa. There is no such study. It isn't. Uh, there has not been a successful nutrition education program in sub-Saharan Africa yet. There will be, but not yet. Uh, that is, if you put into the evaluation criteria the requirement that all expatriate input be removed for three years before you evaluate. Because the success must mean enculturation. It hasn't happened. So I didn't expect to succeed, but I would go and set the program up and train some Africans. The best thing that happened was, of course, I used my children to resuscitate malnourished children. So all my kids, the moment they became teenagers, stopped having holidays in the summer and they worked for me. Uh, they all had children die in their arms as teenagers, but they saved many more. It didn't do them any harm at all, of course, and none of them, surprise, surprise, are materialist. Uh, that's what Africa did for them. It was a wonderful experience for them. Except that two of them didn't finish high school, they did it by correspondence, because obviously if you spent your summer saving children's lives with occasional failures, you don't have much sympathy for somebody complaining about a bad hair day. Uh, they just simply couldn't handle the trivialities of high school. But they did it by correspondence, it's just fine. They all got degrees, and they're, as you can tell, with 18 grandchildren, they're all married and doing what you're supposed to do. Um, and, of course, the program didn't work. I didn't expect it to. And shortly, I suppose on our second visit, because then we were back every year, my wife, who's a do-gooder, uh, I'm trying to cure her of that dreadful disease, but she can, she's trying to civilize me with equally bad results. Um, I was sitting around not doing enough work for her, not saving enough lives. And she said, what's the matter with you this year? You're not doing very much. And I said, I'm thinking. She said, looks to me like you're doing nothing. I said, that's what thinking looks like to you. And you can imagine the family row that followed from that point on. But we're used to them. They don't last very long. Uh, but she won in the end. She said, at least you can do a Bible study for the Africans who have ha gone to university and now have no work. They're unemployed. Now, that hit me rather like a two-by-four over the head. Because if I've had a student in my class, even a biochemistry class, those students go away afterwards, and I meet them years later, and they say, I still haven't got through your reading list. In other words, a year with me ought to send them away with a desire to read that will never be fulfilled completely in a normal lifetime. They may be unpaid in the future, but they ought never to be unemployed. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And then she said, well, you're very interested in Deuteronomy at the moment. That was Bruce Walkie's doing. And... You should do that, she said. So I did, in rather bad French. Fortunately, she speaks very good French, so between us we did all right. And then a God thing happened. I didn't intend to start this talk this way, but we'll, I hope, let the Holy Spirit take the right route. Um, I had a translator sent to me by dream, and he walked a 1,000 kilometers to get to me, and he didn't know why. That sort of sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it? He'd been born in, the, the, the people in the group said, it's a great pity we can't go from English to the tribal language immediately. And then one of them said, but we could. And this young man had walked from Tanzania to uh, Kivu in what is now the non-democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, all around Lake Tanganyika, with his wife. And he spoke good English. He'd been... He'd been brought up as a Muslim, became very discontented with Islam, and had a dream telling him to go and talk to the Christians. It was a recurrent dream. Of course, he resisted it. He was a Muslim. But the dream was so insistent that in the end he went and said, tell me about your faith. He only needed to hear the gospel once, and he was baptized, and his life changed. I said to him sometime later, why on earth would you walk from Tanzania to Zaire on the basis of a dream? And he thought I was a fool. He said, the first one was so good. Why would I disobey the second? And uh, 
Of course, he then became my translator for the next few years, and he learned everything I had to say, of course. Uh, translating is a very good way to be taught. He spent the next, I suppose, 15 years teaching in the refugee camps uh, around Rwanda, Burundi, and East Africa, uh, basically where I taught him. God knew what he was doing. But the point about this that relates to abortion as it relates to nutrition education is that very shortly the elders of the tribe, which had become Christian, heard what I was doing with the young men and said, we want to talk to you. So I had to talk to the elders of the tribe and explain the point about Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. And then they made me teach 6,000 Africans one afternoon in the sunshine in Central Africa. No electricity in the area, and I don't have a strong voice, but that was Mapendo's problem, not mine. Actually, what they did, they arranged a row of D-cells about this long, and it worked. They got enough amplification uh, for a megaphone to work. It worked in an extraordinary way because the next day my wife was being driven from A to B by our driver and he said this to my wife. He said, I heard what your husband said yesterday. And what I'd said to them is you have met with Jesus in conversion in a remarkable way in most cases. Much more joyful about conversion than we are. We're a miserable bunch of old curmudgeons when it comes to our faith basically compared to the Africans. So they had the joy of the release from the fear of evil spirits. But of course... Redemption doesn't make you good, it merely makes you redeemed. Virtue, which is what is needed for society, is a much more complex problem. And uh, so life has not got much better. I mean, one of the worst places in the world to live at the moment is Kivu, the world's worst unannounced, undiscussed war. It's horrendous what's going on there. Um, but I could say to them, the Lord says to you that now that you have accepted me as Lord, you must obey. And one of the things you have to do is, as a man, you must have meals with your children, and it is your job to teach them the stories of the, the Bible. Because in that way, you implant into them their reference bank for moral behavior later on. Now, this young man went home and did that. Profoundly countercultural thing, because the men in that tribe never eat with their girls, and only with their boys after puberty. But he sat down with his children. They eat from a common pot. And he said, I noticed that one of my children was a slow eater, so I gave him his own plate. One afternoon of the exposition of Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6 removed malnutrition from that family forever. 30 years of nutrition education had done nothing. We hadn't started from the right place. A pagan understanding of the world is not compatible with nutrition education and is not compatible with science. Now, if you don't believe me, that's another question you have to ask later because otherwise I will get completely lost time-wise. And this is a very dangerous environment. There's nothing that might give me any indication of time and I haven't got a watch. Um, there are several obsessive compulsives back there who can take charge of that problem and tell me when the time comes to do something about this. That was an extraordinary moment for me to realize that I had not valued what, what I ought to value at the right level. You see, what Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, and 6, in fact the whole of Deuteronomy is, is perhaps the world's greatest commencement address. Moses is not going into the promised land. And what he's doing in Deuteronomy is telling them what will be necessary if they are to survive as a nation, as a culture, as a people. And of course, the survival of the Jews as a nation, a people, and a culture is the most extraordinary historical miracle there is. You cannot imagine any other group of people who could be without their own homeland for 2,000 years and yet be able to return to it identifiable immediately and easily as Jews. Not only did they survive, but they in fact dominate the intellectual life of the Western world. When the real Nobel Prizes are announced, I don't mean the silly ones like peace, uh, the real ones like physics and medicine and biochemistry, they will be run by Jews. An extraordinary percentage, 60 or 70% over the last few years. They may be American Jews or British Jews or French Jews, but they're Jewish deep down. And if you ask them where it comes from, the ones that understand, the Orthodox Jews, will send you straight to Deuteronomy 6. 
Because inhabiting the story as it's told there makes you a Jew. We all inhabit stories. That one produces Jews. And they are extraordinary people. Uh, I sympathize with the Muslims for their, uh, their own history, but it's got to be dealt with. One of the good things that's happening at the moment is Christianity and Judaism have been subjected to real criticism for centuries. Islam is just undergoing the process and not enjoying it any more than we did. But it's necessary. Cultures are not interchangeable. Multiculturalism is a nonsense idea. Uh, it's actually an act, as Charles Taylor puts it, of colossal condescension. Uh, they're different, and they need to be understood in terms of their difference. That doesn't mean you don't respect them, but it means you, you're realistic about them. Medicine and science have only flourished in Judeo-Christian cultures. Uh, when you've heard a Muslim technician say, when a dialysis machine stops, inshallah, you realize that this is a different culture. You say, no, it isn't. It's a fuse. Fix it. Uh, different mindset. It's very difficult for a Muslim who believes that the whole of the world is under Allah's will. Then this person's sickness is also Allah's will. So what are you doing interfering with it? It's incoherent, so there's that tension there all the while. For us, it's easy. It's a fallen world. That's part of the fall. We're supposed to try and reverse the fall as far as we can. We have every, every motivation for doing it. Just as, as we lose that story, we have every motivation and necessarily will reach euthanasia, abortion, the tyranny of the measurable in the new eugenic uh, abortions that are going on, and who knows what next. The big battle in the next while, as far as I'm concerned, will be about the nature of neurophysiology and neuropharmacology, which for Christians ought to be already over. Uh, it is for me. You only have to ask one question. Does God think? It is impossible to say he doesn't, therefore he must. The next question is, does God have a brain? Of course he doesn't. He's pure spirit. Therefore brains are only one means of processing thought. They're not the only source of thought. They're probably not the source of any thought. We don't know what thought is. And we as Christians need to rub the noses of the secular elite in the incoherence of their position. But more of that later today. So Moses points out to them something that evangelicals need to understand much more deeply than they do that their experience of God, which was overwhelming. None of you had a conversion which involved thunder and lightning, a volcano, and God speaking to you, did you? Anybody in that category? Of course not. After that had happened, how much free will did the people who were at Mount Sinai have about believing in God? Absolutely none. God took away their free will for our benefit. Did that experience make them good? No, it did not. They broke the first three commandments in order while Moses was still at the mountain. And he comes down and Moses says to the children of Israel, God heard what you said about obedience. And he said, oh, that they would always have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law that it might go well with them and their children forever. But he knew they wouldn't. So if an experience like Mount Sinai won't make you good, there can't be anything that will. We might as well give up. And Moses says, no, you don't give up. Then comes the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is good. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, put up your hand if you know what comes next. Now, you know I'm out to get you, but it's a 100% learning experience to get it wrong. What comes next? Not quite. Almost. You missed one phrase. Many of you are actually thinking, and your neighbor is yourself, aren't you? If you're honest, if you're thinking at all. Because that's what Jesus quotes in the New Testament. Normally he quotes Deuteronomy, but on that occasion he's actually quoting Leviticus. What comes before your phrase is, it, these things shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit at table, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey. It is the teaching of the story to the children. It's child-rearing, in my view, which suits the pediatrician very well. That creates virtue. We'll come back to this later. The Jews understand that. You see, all children inhabit stories. How many of you have got small children in your life at the moment, under fives? 
Well, you're right at the heart of this. There's something unique about that age group. They love stories, don't they? They'll even turn off the television for mom, dad, granddad, or grandma to read to them, right? They have their favorite books. By the time they're seven, it's changed. So seven and over, they'll go to their bedroom and fetch the book they're in the middle of and milk you for as many chapters as you will read. But the under fives, they're not like that, are they? They go to the cupboard, even in our house, there's a good stock, and they bring their favorite story, which I, of course, have read many times before, and I get bored very easily, so I try and shorten it. Some of you read to children. What do they say? No! You have got to read it properly. Or as one of them said not long ago, has Grandad forgotten how to read? <laughs> Why do they want a repeated story they already know every word of? Why does the little brat want me to read a story he already knows? And I found this in every culture I visited. It's the same worldwide. The stories are different. I think what they're trying to do is to put down their roots into the culture to find out who they are. And God has hardwired children to believe that the dominant story in their life will answer that question for them. And of course it does, if it's the right story. If you grow up with the Old Testament stories as the core curriculum, you get a Jew with Jewish ethics. If, as our grandparents did, and even my generation, you grew up with the Bible as the dominant story, you get a Christian with Christian ethics. The Christian ethics never departed from me when I stopped practicing the faith, because they'd been put in way back there. I never went to school without the Bible being read and prayer being said before I set out. I knew all the Bible stories long before I was eight. Uh, that was what my parents gave me. What an incredible gift. Now, if you grow up with the Quran, you get a Muslim with Muslim ethics. And the Veda, the Vedanta, Hindu with Hindu ethics. But what's the repeated story in the lives of North Americans today? It's not the Bible, is it? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's television advertising. Those are the most brilliant short stories that have ever been written. And they pay all those thousands of dollars to make them because they work. As Wendell Berry puts it in one of his poems, we have put your mind in a drawer, we will call you when we want you, in effect. They've got it down to the point where they can do it, let's see if I can do it backwards. What does that mean? What's the, the symbol of? Nike. And what does it mean? What's the story? Just three words. Just do it. Are they? Is your generation just doing it? Of course you do. Your generation is. Now, when I teach in medical school, the women in the class have a higher prevalence of sexually transmitted disease than recruits for the Second World War had when they were enrolled. That's just doing it. And it's irreversible what has happened. There is moral consequence attached to that. The Bible stories teach moral consequence all the way through. Television doesn't. It says you can get away with everything, and it is a lie. They teach no virtues and only vices. That's where our problem lies. And what I began to realize in Africa was the Africans were willing to move from the pagan story to the Christian story. People say to me, why do you go to Africa, which I do every 18 months or so, it's a basket case. I say, I don't think so. Because Africa is a continent of new Christians in a fading pagan story. And North America is a continent of new nihilists, currently soft nihilists, in a fading Christian story. Soft nihilism for easy understanding, I call it Seinfeldism. Uh, the most watched show in North America, full of Jewish angst in which nothing ever happens and nothing ever has moral consequence. Both things are lies, but the kids are living as though they are the truth. Not surprising, we have a problem. Now, this is a very old story. Out of that story, you can see where abortion comes from. If that story is true, as Bob Weiss said, you, do, you only go around once, do what you want, just do it.
as I pointed out last year, the way to talk to people about abortion is not to say that it's wrong, but to reverse it and say, what would you need to believe to make it right? And do you really want the consequences that go with that proposition, which they never do? Where did this begin? Well, if the, if the Jews had kept the law, it would never have begun. Because here is objective moral law given by God. And it has to be given by God for it to work. Without transcendence, we cannot have what we want. Because we all want justice. But if the law is a creation of mankind, we can't get there from there. As the Irishman said to the the uh, American in Killarney asking how to get to Dublin. If I were you, sir, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're starting from a place to which we cannot, from which we cannot get to our destination. This is Lewis, quoted earlier by Bob Weiss in, in The Abolition of Man. Way back in the 1940s, he wrote something like this, paraphrasing, but fairly accurately, I think. He said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform your life to objective reality. That, of course, is God and God's law. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. Three courses that are not taught in the modern university, are they? They should be in every philosophy course, but they aren't. That, the medievals knew, was essential. He says, for the modern man, the cardinal problem of human life is how to conform reality to your desires, and the solution is technique. Is that true of us? Well, yes, it is. The best example, of course, being contraception, which was the necessary pre immediate prerequisite of abortion. The reason abortion law succeeded was because we had accepted contraception. You see, up until the pill in the 60s, we didn't have an effective contraceptive. Once the pill came along, we had an effective contraceptive. But as the Roe v. Wade decision quite straightforwardly put it, Americans have become used to an effective contraceptive, but no contraceptive is 100% effective, so there must be a backup. Both moves had been accepted. The world must be conformed to our desires, and technological failure must be fixed with some other technological method. And abortion was legalized on those grounds. That was the argument that carried Roe v. Wade. Now, only one person in the world understood when the pill came along what was at stake. And that was Paul VI when writing Humana Vitae. He said, the problem with an effective contraceptive is that it will, A, Diminish respect for women. Has it done that? It has, hasn't it? Because young men know that 90% of the women around them are taking the pill, therefore they can have sex without risk of babies. And if a baby comes along, they say, the woman's your fault, you weren't taking the pill. Is that increased or decreased respect for women? It's total decrease, isn't it? It's turning the woman into a sex object. Men need to be civilized by men, by women. That's the job of women, to civilize men. There's nobody else to do the job. Uh, so that they can learn that relationships are about love, not about sexual satisfaction. And women who think that you get love through sexual satisfaction are giving themselves away. Paul VI understood that. The second thing he said, it will lead to a general lowering of moral standards. Has that happened? Sure it has. Even in sport, when I was a schoolboy in that strange English game of cricket, which is extremely difficult to referee or umpire uh, because you're standing 22 yards from where the action is happening and in cricket, the ball can be caught behind a bat with just the slightest snick and it may not even deviate a visible amount. But the batsman always knows if he's touched a ball. And the people like the catcher in your terms uh, know it too, but the umpire can't hear that. When I was at school, the honorable thing to do when you knew you touched the ball was to step away from the wicket and thereby indicate to the umpire that you had touched it and he gave you out. Those boys who didn't do that got the reputation they deserved. But do you think anybody does that in international cricket now? Well, about two do, both Christians. 
it's a small thing, and yet it is also a large thing, because it is a diminution in society in general. It's a long time this process has been going on. It goes right back to the Greeks. Protagoras was probably the first. He said that man is the summit of things, to say of what is, that it is, and what is not, that it is not. This is the next stage in Lewis's argument in the abolition of man. Those used to believe in transcendent. Now, he says, for the modern man, for whom technique is the solution to his desires, but those techniques are always controlled by a few men who therefore have control over all men. But these men no longer believe in God and God's transcendent laws, so they are not controlled by his transcendent laws. Instead, they are controlled by all that's left to them, their own heredity and their own environmental history. Thus, he says, man's conquest of nature turns out to be nature's conquest of man. The animal rights movement is a direct result. We reduced ourselves by losing this contact with transcendence, and now most young people do not know how to argue that a human baby is of more value than a harrier's egg. They cannot defend that proposition because they've lost the sense of the image of God. Protagoras, who said, man is the summit of things, to say what is that it is and what is not that it is not, was starting that. Now, the problem with philosophers is that they have students. Protagoras had a, a student. His name was Alcibiades. All you need to know about Alcibiades is that he was very modern, he was a moral relativist, he was a politician, and he wrecked Greece. The story of the Sicilian expedition. If you really want to hear a brilliant lecture, go to Augustine College, www.augustinecollege.org, and you can buy a CD of Ed Blado giving a lecture called What Shall We Do With Alcibiades? It's absolutely stunningly clever, but wrong ideas transmitted by people who never leave an ivory tower can wreck the world. That's what Protagoras did with Alcibiades. And what about that Jewish man that scribbled in the British Museum for most of his lifetime and was fairly poverty-stricken, uh, fairly loose in his sexual habits? Did he change the world? Karl Marx. Millions spent their lives in slavery because of him. What we believe has consequences. Abortion cannot be dealt with as an isolated entity. It isn't. It's a perfectly logical outcome of what we have come to believe to be true and appropriate. And it goes right back then. The Greeks, however, did also give us some good things. They thought about the nature of knowledge, and they thought about it in a richer way than we did. Uh, they understood that immaterial things were part of knowledge as well as material things. So the, the typical model of causation, for instance, the, the four-cause model was, uh, it has fancy names, it's called the material, the formal, the efficient, the final causes, but you don't need to remember that, uh, unless you're taking a philosophy exam. Uh, just think about a statue, and you've got the basic idea. A statue has a material cause in what it's made out of, the marble, the bronze, whatever it is. It has a formal cause in the ideas inside the head of the sculptor. Michelangelo famously would liberate what he saw in a block of marble. It has an efficient cause in the, the tools and the uh, uh, skills that the sculptor had. And a final cause in the purpose for which he was doing the whole thing to beautify the city, the teleology. The teleology is where we've gone wrong in our culture. Um, we'll get to that next, or a little step or two in between. That was the way they thought about the world. And the point is that two of those categories cannot be measured, quantified. One can clearly be quantified, and one other can be partially quantified. And what happened with the Endarkenment, I refuse to call it an Enlightenment, is that we began to believe that the only things that were true in a public sense were things that could be quantified. That is wrong. It's clearly wrong. I've only got five minutes left. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, 
this is going to be a two-part lecture, I think, and uh, we'll divide up the next bit. What happened? Well, Christ came and changed the world. That's uh, an astonishing story. No violence, the poorest of the poor, and in a few centuries, the world was taken over by Christians. And again, I think childcare was at the heart of it. Um, the, the example I would use, the oldest letter I know, written by uh, a Roman politician about Christians, says this. These Christians are not exposing their own children, and moreover, they are rescuing the exposed children of others. What should I do? And they never solved the problem. You see, long before we had formal church, or we had much in the way of Christian literature, just an oral tradition, People who had got saved and experienced Jesus in their lives did not require to be extremely smart to realize that life was a gift from God. Now, there have always been children that we think we can't handle. And the solution in the ancient world was infanticide. The children were actually dumped at a place at the city gates in many places, and if somebody wanted to pick them up, they could, otherwise the dogs ate them. That's the way it worked. Now, these Christians realized they could no longer do that. They didn't know how they were going to cope, but they did. Do children make a church a better or a worse place? They make it much better, don't they? In fact, a church without children is already on its way out. And hopefully if your church is a real one and a, a poor single mother comes in, she should never have to buy baby clothes, right? That kind of thing began to happen. They supported one another. And they found that they were doing fine. Then they made the next step. They thought about the children who were being dumped at the city gates, and they started picking them up too. Do you think one of those children who was picked up at the city gates when he got to, say, 10 or 11, and was old enough to understand, and mum and dad said, we have to tell you something. You're not our child biologically. You are our child, but you're a special gift from God because you had been left at the city gates, and because Jesus loved us, we loved you and picked you up. Does the gospel need to be preached to such a child? It's over, isn't it? Done. And that Roman politician understood that people who did that would win. And they did. We are going to win for the same reason. People of faith in North America are having three children. Secularists are having one. We win. If we hadn't got into contraception, we would have won already because we would have had, on average, four children. Uh, with natural family planning, you can get close to the pill if you want to be prudent, but you allow God to turn up. You can ask me questions about that again later, because I have to stop in just a moment. Now, what happened next was a political disaster. It was called Constantine. It wasn't a success, because it made Christianity a politically desirable position to hold. And shortly, the church became dominated by what's known as simony, uh, basically the buying of places in the church by people who didn't believe. Uh, there were always people in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, obviously at this stage, who attempted to bring the church back to a more pietistic base, but they rarely succeeded. Gregory the Great was the first monk who became a pope, and he was a great pope, but the elite liberals in Rome, as soon as he was gone, they made sure the next guy was one of them. And it was like that all the way through. Some of them were absolutely horrendous. You read the stories of them. Mistresses, praying to Zeus in St. Peter's, you name it, it all happened. Luther had a lot to complain about. Uh, but Luther reformed the Catholic Church. Whether he formed the Protestant one is another question. At least it's dying on its feet at the moment. But that's what happened. And so Chesterton, in his lovely biography, biography of St. Francis. He's the only guy I know who could write a history book without a single date in it. Uh, but he says this, when Rome collapsed, if you went into a garden, you would find a pornographic statue in the middle of the garden. In the 13th century, when St. Francis was around, if you went into a garden, it would be a monastery garden, and you would find a saint, or a Madonna, or a crucifix. And slavery had been had disappeared without any legislation. There was serfdom, and that, but that had responsibilities. And in due course, slavery was abolished, dis did disappear from Europe without any legislation. 
Christianity in the so-called Dark Ages purged the soul of Europe. And then, where we'll have to pick up this afternoon, it all began to change for the worse, not with endarkment, but before that. And Christians did it with good intentions that produced awful outcomes. It's one of the seminars I want to hear in heaven. Why, O oh Lord, <laughs> did you do it this way? But that's for this afternoon. Occam, Descartes, and Bacon, I'll pick up there and go from there. Uh, did I make it within the time limit? Okay, so you can extend the lecture or ask questions, <laughs> whichever you want. Thank you, Dr. Patrick. Questions? Interaction with Dr. Patrick? Or repeats of any bits you want, you know. <laughs> In case you missed it the first time. Your question free. The mic can rove. You, uh, the students, it you. getting it wrong in public is a 100% learning experience. So whenever you get the chance to ask a question about something you don't understand and make a fool of yourself, do it. You will never have to remember that again ever in your life. You'll know it. I don't know if there are uh, questions so much as comments. Um, That's fine. As sort of two little things came to my mind. Um, the first was, uh, I found it interesting you were talking about childcare with the Christians there in the start because, you know, uh, when Paul was starting out, the other apostles at that time said to him, you know, you're doing great, you're doing fine, just remember the poor. Yes. And we know at that time that the children and elders were considered the poorest because they were second-class citizens, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I just found that was an interesting connection there. Yeah. Um, it, it began, they were still the best off of the children compared to other cultures, and that remains the same, but I'll, I'll make a comment about that when you're finished. Okay, and the second part, though, I, I think I wanted to contest with you about Alcibiades, and the reason for that is I, well, I, my background's a little bit in classics, so I've yes, actually okay. read... You're an expert on these the, things. The, uh, well, psh, whatever. <laughs> but I, I've read, what do you call it, the Peloponnese Moor there. Yes. So, um, well, if you read the Alcibiades, of course, he's a very great guy. Yeah. <laughs> he was very full of himself. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a crafty guy. I, I found, though, just from reading about him, that he was more of a scapegoat, and it oh. was more... I think he was a Trudeau. <laughs> well, he, he was a scapegoat. I think he was forced into becoming a traitor, though, by uh, the people. No, of I said a Trudeau, not a traitor. Oh. <laughs> well. Trudeau I, of the Pierre variety, you know. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, basically, you know, I think it's more the people on a whole, which can go back then again to our sin as people, yeah. you know. But yeah, I, I don't know if I would entirely blame Alcibiades in a case like that. No, it's a good story, though. He certainly had a huge impact uh, because he took protocol. Protagoras very seriously, and he was, was it, he lived in the household of Plato, didn't he, or Socrates, I can't remember which. Do you remember which it was? One of them had a major effect on him as well. It was Socrates, was it? I, I can't remember, I'm getting to the point where I have senior moments. But the point about childcare, by the way, still happens. Um, when I'd finished the work in Central Africa, I realized that you could look at malnutrition, and if you fabricated a kind of index of fatalism within the culture, the prevalence of malnutrition was linearly related. The more fatalism, the more malnutrition. Now, I tried to publish that, and they wouldn't because it's politically incorrect. But amazingly, the World Bank publishes it regularly because they have, uh, in their development uh, sections, they use prevalence of malnutrition as an index of development. Now, it turns out that Jews never get malnutrition. Now, I'm not talking about war and famine. That's a special case. Everybody gets malnourished if there's war and famine. The problem is that there's malnourishment amongst children in the presence of food. That's the problem. I can go into any village in sub-Saharan Africa at the beginning of the tri season, which is the best time of year for food supply, and find at least 5% of the children in the village who need my help. But I do not need to take any food with me. I can find it in the village. The problem is the hierarchy of who gets it. Now, when you look at the prevalence rates, Jews never get it. Enculturated Protestants, I don't mean people going to church, but people who live in a culture which has been dominated by Judeo-Christian thought of the Protestant variety for the last centuries, they don't get it either. 
after the Second World War, Hitler had starved the Dutch into a point where there were many malnourished children in uh, Holland when the Allies liberated. The first thing the Allies did was to set up a committee to decide what to do about this. Before that committee reported, before there was any real improvement, there was no malnutrition left in Holland. It disappeared in less than three months. Why? Because they inhabited a story that put the needs of the children first. Now, Catholics get it occasionally, but only where syncretic with animism, as in South America. And the last country to lose malnutrition was Chile. I suspect that South America and Central America are the next ones to go because of that tradition. Hindus and Buddhists have quite a lot. Muslims have quite a lot. Even in Saudi Arabia, they're malnourished children, the richest country in the world. Uh, and animists, of course, have the most. It's not an accident. You think about it, and you can work it out. Any other questions? Thank you. Another question here, yes. <clears throat> I was raised in a Jewish family. And uh, my grandfather was one of 17. My grandmother was one of 16 children. Yeah. Um, family was very important. And uh, he, he, in particular, always wanted a son. He ended up with five girls. <laughs> and uh, when I came along, I was from the first girl. And I was, I think, three or four years old, and they had been teaching me the Sriracusha, the four questions yes. at the Passover. And when I did those for him, the tears went down his eyes. Mm. Never missed a Seder, never missed a, a Sabbath. Never missed, it was always teaching the children at the table, in the house, and even at work. Yep. And uh, what you say is very true, and amongst the Jewish people, yeah. Those traits get embedded. Yes. Even though you hear it over and over and over again. Yes. And you, you are realistic about human nature. Whereas all the utopian philosophies, often driven by Jews like Marx, deny that central insight of the fall. The one Christian doctrine, one Judeo Christian doctrine, which as Chesterton said, surely needs no proof. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. And the rabbis missed it too in the sense yeah. that. Uh, when we talk about thought, word, and deed, uh, yeah. the, they understand the words. They can deal with that. They understand yeah. the, the deeds that people do. But yeah. they can never understand how you're going to read the thoughts. Yeah. Of, of if I forget this afternoon to talk briefly about Robert Fogel, ask me to do so. I think you'd probably agree that things like abortion largely stem from moral relativism. Of course, that's where we get to next. And I know, I know that you know Arthur Leff and things like Unspeakable Ethics yes, and Natural of course. Law. Yeah. And that wonderful conclusion, for anyone who hasn't heard it, please, I also know that you know it from memory, so please yes. say that as soon as this is done. But in your experience, what is, how do people like abortionists, like moral relativists, react to something so undeniable? I mean, how do they cope with that? With great difficulty. That, that's why when I, I lecture on abortion in, in secular universities now, I never have an aggressive question at the end. I've probably deconstructed a woman's right to choose on abortion somewhere between 50 and 80 times, from Harvard to California to Oxford to St. Petersburg to Australia. You know, I've never had an aggressive question at the end of the lecture. Because... That what they have not done is thought about the consequences of their initial desire to have their own way. And it's what you have to learn to do is to teach consequentially. Now, it's available from last year's talk, which is there. I also have some CDs, if you want it, which are, in a way, a bit more fun than the talk, because the CD I have with me was recorded in the University of Minnesota with Planned Parenthood in the audience. You can almost feel the antagonism at the beginning, but at the end they're dead silence, and they actually called an emergency meeting after the lecture. And that's happened more than once. Um, their, their problem is that they're not malicious. They're following their debased understanding of what it means to be human, and the logic just flows. As Jay Budzieszewski puts it, we are still logical, but slowly. If you want to read a really beautiful essay in terms of style, read Jay Budzieszewski's Revenge of Conscience in First Things from a few years ago. Just go firstthings.com, Revenge of Conscience, and you'll get to it. It's a stunningly beautifully written essay about moral consequence, really.
I wanted to follow up, Dr. Patrick. Um, you mentioned early on that, uh, if I understood you correctly, that you see um, that you view abortion as having been one of the triggers. I think you may have said it even a little stronger than that in changing our understanding of justice yes. from being the pursuit of justice, uh, our understanding of law from the pursuit of justice to it. the pursuit yes. of power. Yes. yes, perhaps you could comment more on that. Yeah, that's what the young man was asking me about. Well. I'm not going to do it in my words because Leff did it so much more eloquently and I can recite him, so I will do that. Uh, Arthur Leff was a teacher of common law at Yale in the 1970s. As far as I can discover, he was Jewish and non-practicing, but I'm not sure about that. He died relatively young. Um, I don't know what of. I, I would love to know more about his biography. But in 1979, just six years after the Roe v. Wade decision, he gave a lecture at Duke which is one of the most stunning lectures I've ever read. Uh, and it was on the philosophy of justice. It has a, the kind of title you can't remember. It's something like Unspeakable Justice, Unnatural Law, or something like that. Um, but you just go to Duke Law Review for 1979 and put Lef, L-E-F-F, and you'll get to it. But it begins like this. He says, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete immanent, and you have to explain to students that's a technical term meaning available to you, not happening next week, not imminent, but immanent, a complete, transcendent, and immanent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that direct us as to how to live our lives righteously. Now, he's Jewish. What he's talking about, of course, is Torah. And he wants it because only if the law is given by God are both the judge and the judge under the same authority. And that is a, a sine qua non for justice. Uh, but he goes on and also says, but I want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing but rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, is to be simultaneously perfectly free and perfectly ruled. That is at the same time to discover the right and the good and to invent it. Now no one can do that. Not even Americans can do that. It is impossible. Then he does something very, very unacademic. He writes 20 pages of totally lucid prose. He's not showing off. He wants to communicate, and he does, weighing these two options. Now, he's a professor at Yale in the 1970s, and social Darwinianism is the norm. And he can't bring himself to push it aside. So he gets to the penultimate paragraph, and he says, it looks to me as though we are all that we have. In other words, Darwin's right. But he's an honest Jew. He says, looking around the world, this is an extraordinary, or extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. If brotherly love exists, the ruling model appears to be Cain and Abel. Nowadays, I have to explain to students who Cain and Abel were because they no longer know, hopefully not in this audience. He says, only if the law was unspeakable by us would it be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. As things stand at present, everything is up for grabs. This, I think, was the first, uh, the first occasion I found of the recognition that the law has become the pursuit of power. It's up for grabs. Uh, three faculties in the modern university, well, not faculties, groups in the modern university actually teach that. Black studies, women's studies, and homosexual studies all teach that. But it, again, he's honest. So he has one, two more sentences, totally negating his own conclusion. He says, nevertheless, napalming babies is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Starving the poor is wrong. There is in this world such a thing as evil. He just said there wasn't. He knew what he should do. If you have a technically correct argument, arriving at an unsustainable conclusion, you must re-examine the premise. What he should have done is gone back and said, because we know that napalming babies is depraved, evil, and similarly with the poor, uh, and we're selling ourselves. Because we know that, it looks to me as though we cannot be all that we have because we cannot get from there to here, from there, from here to there. And he should have rewritten that last paragraph. He never did it. But he never gave another lecture that I'm aware of on the philosophy of justice. He went back to dotting the I's and crossing the T's of common law because that's all he could do. It's sad, really, isn't it? But from our point of view, it's a brilliant uh, article to use because it takes away the anti-Christian bias. They can't say it's just Christians saying that. 
You can't say that. It's very important in this area to look carefully at what atheists write. A good atheist is much more valuable than 20 Christians. The best deconstruction of Darwinism is by an atheist and a philosopher. Have you read any David Stove yet? Oh, you have to read him. Darwinian Fairy Tales is a book that will make you chuckle uh, and will also give you the arguments. He, he was probably Australia's best philosopher, an, an atheist who committed suicide when he found he'd got cancer, but a hard rationalist. And he said, I, I couldn't care less, and evolution may well be true as an explanation of how animals arrive, but it is absolutely not an explanation of human beings. And it's utter, utterly irrational to say so. And he writes this brilliant book uh, with... It's passionate, it's venomous, and it's elegant. <laughs> you can't do better. Thank you. Yeah.